Well, good morning to you all. And it truly is a, a happy new year. Trust the Lord will continue to guide us and direct us and give us hope, joy, and increasing faith in this new year. Uh, I kind of have labeled the uh, particular lesson that we're on today, three strikes and it's game over. So that's, that's what we're dealing with. We're actually going to run through three different kings of Judah who occurred in quick succession in Judah's rapid decline to uh, captivity in Babylon. So uh, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin today. Let's pray and commit our way to the Lord. This is his word. Father, we pray that you would cause us to handle your word faithfully. Part of that faithfulness comes in proclamation of it as we uh, give it to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends, and speak it to our own hearts. And part of that truth or, or faithful handling of your word comes with our willingness to submit to it. The reality is we continue to find ourselves challenged with our sinfulness and it becomes frustrating to us. We enter a new year with so many great hopes and so many great desires and good intentions with reference to our life before you and we find ourselves sinners still. And yet the consistent testimony of your word is that redemption does not spring up from within us by our good intention and by our power. It springs up from a redeemer who is powerful to save. And our responsibility is not just to try harder and to clean up life, although um, having accepted Jesus Christ, yes, we want to live pure lives before him, but our responsibility is that of repentant faith. And so in our new year, may our resolutions and intentions not be like the world intends and like the world resolves with the arm of flesh backed merely with the strength of the human mind, but rather may our intentions and resolutions be laid out before you as people who really do love you. We really do care about your opinions and we wish to do them effectively. And we look forward to a great day in which our Savior will come, the King of kings truly, the Lord over all the lords of this earth. And he will replace the kings and the premiers and the prime ministers and the presidents of this entire world. And his rule will be everlasting and it will be a reign of righteousness and truth. So we have great hope in you, and we commit our way to you this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Nearly everybody likes vacations. In fact, a lot of us have been on vacations over the last several weeks in Christmas time. Uh, perhaps it's because we have such much-needed recreation and time for recreation. We literally need to recreate and restore our energies internally. That creates the biggest allure. Maybe we just like to see new things that are around us. But I suspect that vacations are so important to us as well because of the sense of freedom that they bring to us. The rest of life is so hyper-structured. Um, have to go to work. You know, the alarm clock goes off in the morning. You say, but I don't want to go to school, you know, in our case, uh, as teachers. We don't want to go to school any more than the students want to go to school. And yet you 
have to go to school. It's gonna, they're going to arrive in your classroom. Uh, in the pre-college ages, they're going to arrive in the classroom at about 7.40, so you'd better be ready for them. And my students at 8 o'clock and so on. So we love the freedom and unstructured time. We all long for freedom, freedom from bosses, freedom from rules, freedom from government. Sometimes this longing for freedom extends to the desire for freedom from God. Even as redeemed ones who want to walk with the Lord, the reality is on occasion that desire for what we call autonomy or a self-directed life. I know that God's law is over here and I know that his will is specifying a way that I should walk in, but wouldn't it be nice if we could just direct our own lives and go the way that we wanted to go for a little while? And we try it out periodically throughout life, sometimes several times a day, and it never works. The testimony of our text before us today is a testimony that is dealing with this concept of autonomy or pressing the human desire and the human will forward and some of its consequences. So let us read 2 Kings chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 30 to hear what the Lord has to say about this um, constant confusion and desire that reigns in our soul in terms of of, uh, pressing our wills upon life instead of listening to him. This is the testimony that God gives to us. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he, re- he reigned three months, three short months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. Christmas shopping is such an experience. The lights, the glitz, the millions of choices, and most of us have experienced another wonder of the season. A child throwing a temper tantrum. Anybody see that this this Christmas? You're out shopping, and some child somewhere in the store, you could probably hear them from the other side of the store, is throwing a temper tantrum. What, What does that spring from? When do children throw temper tantrums? When they don't get their way, when mother, father, somebody else in life has specified this is where we are going, this is what we are going to do. No, keep your hands to yourself. So here's the child who's throwing a temper tantrum because he wants to walk instead of ride in the shopping cart. And five minutes later, he throws a temper tantrum because he wants to ride in the shopping cart, he doesn't want to walk anymore. Or he wants to ride in the front of the shopping cart instead of in the back, the big open area. Or he's like, no, I want to ride in the big open area instead of the front. And then he throws a temper tantrum because he can't have the toys that are there on the shelf, pull them all off. He throws a temper tantrum because his mother drives down the middle of the aisle to keep him from reaching everything that's on the side. And so it goes. 
an expression of the will. I want to rule myself. I want to be in charge of the situation. My mother is merely there to do my bidding. And of course, from their earliest days, children get used to this. They, they can only express true needs through crying. And so sometimes, and very quickly, they learn to lie. They don't really need anything, and they cry anyway. Why? To bend others to their will, to be in charge. A year ago, my wife and I were at a store here in town when a parent brought in a very insubordinate child. We kept moving around the store, trying to avoid them, because there was this constant loud ruckus wherever they went. And you know how it is, uh, they go down that aisle, you're already on the aisle, so you just quickly duck out and go down a new aisle. Well, um, with all this confusion going on and the chaos of the child trying to get his own way, making a miserable shopping experience for everybody in the whole store, suddenly we heard a violent cascading crash. The child had gotten the parent to park the cart really near to a stacked wine display. And the child had pulled out a bottom bottle. And it wasn't just a bottle that broke. It was the display's worth of wine that broke. Okay, and I don't, I don't prefer the smell of things that are decaying and rotting like that. And it filled the store with it. There was an ocean. I, I kind of, I heard the crash. So I went to see if anybody needed any help. We were actually kind of midway through the store at that point. And I, I got the, just in time to see the father pick up the child, kind of stuff him under the coat and speed down the side of the store and out the front door. So they, they escaped, and uh, uh, an employee came running, and there's a sea of alcohol spreading throughout the store. And they spent the next hour or so trying to clean it up because it was so large. Autonomy or self-rule is a tricky thing. When a manager grants a trusted employee a certain level of of self-government, because the employee is is trustworthy, so it says, here, you take this project and run it the way that you see fit because you've demonstrated experience, that's a good thing, right? Uh, Managers are even taught in, in school, right? They go get their MBA or something like that, and they say, give your employees as much autonomy as they're capable of. If they don't need to be overseen in every little area of their responsibilities, then don't do it. That sense of freedom actually empowers the employee to make good decisions and to be effective in work. But it's another thing altogether when that same employee, having tasted that little bit of freedom, disregards his boss entirely, and his boss said, I need you to take care of this contract because it's a really important contract. Get it done before the end of the day. And he goes, I don't want to take care of that contract. I'm going to work on my own projects instead. And the corporation loses the business of a major client because of what we would call insubordination. So autonomy can be dangerous, especially when we demand it in the face of the authorities that God has placed in life, or we demand it in the face of God's own plan over us. At such times, a passage like 2 Kings chapters 23 and 24 stand in the path of our self-destruction, and, they, and these chapters warn us that an unbelieving autonomy brings bondage, not freedom. We think that self-rule means freedom. 
And from even the garden onward, we have found that self-rule transfers real freedom now into the category of slavery. We become enslaved to our lust. We become enslaved to Satan. We become enslaved to this world and many other things. Unbelieving autonomy brings bondage, not freedom. So we are to guard our faith in the Lord in this new year. And that's an active thing. We're guarding faith. It it wears away and it, it deteriorates if we're not actively building up faith and saying, yes, I've had another problem of life, but Lord, I trust you. And there's another difficulty, another opportunity to show faith. Lord, I trust you in this moment. So our passage begins by testifying that unbelieving autonomy brings a loss of opportunity. Again, we think it's going to give us freedom. We think it's going to expand our sphere of opportunity. It actually brings a constrictor of that very opportunity in the first few verses. For one thing, it loses the benefit of a godly heritage. Many of us have grown up with good parents, sometimes good grandparents. We have good church influences, a wonderful pastor, maybe other spiritual influences of life. All of that would be part of our good heritage and godly heritage. But what does autonomy do with all of that wisdom and all of that input into life? It stiff arms it. It pushes it away. It says, I'd rather go in my direction, my way. My parents don't know what they're talking about. God's word doesn't know what it's talking about. My pastor in explaining the scripture doesn't know what he's talking about. While the end of verse 32 will force our attention back to some of the earlier wicked kings of Judah, the beginning of our text reminds us that Jehoahaz is whose son? Josiah. Josiah the righteous. And let me review just very briefly with you. I just read through First and Second Samuel, First Kings in the last couple of days. And one of the things I was struck with once again is just how tenuous the kingships really were. David, for example, apex. Everybody in Israel is going to hold David up here from now on. Oh, the glory days of David. Oh, if we could just get back to the golden age of Israel when David was ruling. You think, okay, so any problems David experienced? I'm not talking about his sins. Problems he experienced while he was king. Saul and his sons are killed on the same day on Mount Geboa. And Judah gets together and anoints David king at Hebron. But what's happening simultaneously? The rest of Israel gets together and anoints Ishbosheth, one of the sons of Saul, king. And so you have a, a dual regency. And they kind of eye each other a little bit suspiciously for a while, but there's some level of quietude. Abner is Ishbosheth's commander, and Joab is David's commander. And they get together one day, armies behind them, across a pool. And the water, the armies are getting water. And Abner and Joab are talking with each other and like, hey, how, I've got an idea. How about you pick a bunch of guys and I'll pick a bunch of guys and we'll just let them kind of wrestle with each other. A little bit of fisticuffs and see how things turn out. Well, those men fight each other and they all kill each other. All of them. Each one 
thrusts his sword through the other, and they all fall down dead, and a battle erupts that turns into a war that leads to Ishbosheth's slow decline and David's ascendancy and so on. Okay? So David's already had to fight for the kingship, even though he's God's ordained, anointed king. Then because of his sinful choices, God brings certain levels of judgment against him that are going to involve things like Absalom's revolt. And David has to flee for his life and is almost killed by his own son in a coup d'etat. And then he just gets that revolt suppressed and quelled. Absalom is killed when Joab thrusts three javelins through his heart when his hair is caught hanging in a tree. And Shebna, the son of Bichri, is like, hey, we don't have anything to do with David. Let's go reign over ourselves. And he revolts. So David has to deal with another coup d'etat immediately on the heels of the first one. And then near the very end of his reign, David is still king. Another one of his sons says, hey, you know what? I'm tired of the old man reigning. I'm going to appoint myself king. And so another of David's sons goes off and gathers a few people together, including Joab, and says, let's anoint me king. And they go, okay, sure, let's go ahead with it. And David's like, hmm, that's not God's plan. Solomon's supposed to be king. So when they hear the noise of that and the report comes in, one of your sons is anointing himself king. They're like, we've got to solve that problem. So David anoints or has Solomon anointed king and then brings Solomon back, sits Solomon on David's throne, and David himself bows to Solomon. And we have this conflict again. That's the apex point of Israel's history. Nice time, isn't it? Intrigue, court intrigue, assassination attempts, coup d'etat, all going on one after another after another. The kingship is never secure. Um, Shakespeare is going to say, uneasy is the head that wears the crown, right? Or uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Why is that? Because a king has to be supported by other people. And if those other people happen to be princes and elitists, they may not like you being king if you don't give them their way. And they may sponsor attacks against you. Now, all of that is to remind you of and set up something about Josiah that's really important for us to remember. Josiah can look back on Judah's history, Israel's history, and realize that there have been assassinations of even good kings. Jotham was a good king, but he was assassinated. He can look back this direction and realize that there is danger if you fly in the face of the desires of the people, and certainly if you thwart the plans of the deep state. And Josiah says, I don't care. I'm going to do what's right anyway. And it's the same Josiah that breaks down the altars that the governor of the city of Jerusalem was using to enrich himself. The same Josiah that goes out and destroys utterly Solomon's idols that none of the other kings of Judah, even the righteous ones, had been willing to touch. Remember when we covered that a few weeks ago? That's how righteous Josiah is. And you go, Josiah, this is not how you do it. You're going to make a lot of enemies if you do things this way. They're going to threaten your life. You might even be assassinated if you do things this way. And Josiah says, I will do what's right regardless. And that's Jehoahaz's father. 
So since the gravity of this, when Jehoahaz comes to power and chooses to do what is wicked, what is evil in the sight of the Lord, because he wants freedom from the constrictors of Mosaic law, and he doesn't want to follow after the wise input and counsel of his father, and he doesn't want to be bound by God. He thinks he's getting freedom, and the reality is he loses the benefit of his godly heritage. How many times do we have to witness that in human history where young people are trained well and walk away from the Lord? And how many are on our prayer list, even for Wednesday night prayer meeting, that are children or grandchildren of you who are away from the Lord? And they think they're going to achieve so much, and it's going to be so grand to be free. In reality, their freedom has been brought to nothing, and they have lost the benefit of simply walking with the Lord and following leaders who care about them. What does Jehoahaz also lose in his opportunities? He loses previous independence. Verses 32 to 34 show us that Jehoahaz's life is now constrained by, very rapidly, by Pharaoh Necho. Now, Pharaoh Necho himself is about to fall utterly and irrevocably to Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't matter. The Lord's going to use Necho to accomplish one little measure of judgment additional against Judah before Necho himself is subjugated. And what is that measure? He goes up against Jerusalem, seizes Jehoahaz, and carts him away to prison in Egypt. Jehoahaz loses his previous independence. You say, well, well, was he really independent in the first place? Yeah, again, go back to his father, Josiah, and remember that Josiah is expanding his influence. Judah had, con- had been contracting for some period of time as the number of cities under Judah's, the Judean king's control was limited and as the adversaries of Judah were taking those cities. But Josiah, under God's leadership, was expanding his authority. He was able to send emissaries all the way up into the northern parts of northern Israel and invite people back to the Passover. And there was strength and increasing power that Josiah was achieving under the hand of the Lord. Judah was independent. And then they turned away from the Lord, seeking autonomy. They sought freedom and gained bondage. In the very pursuit of independence, instead of the... When Josiah pursued the Lord, God gave them independence. When people pursue independence, they lose both the Lord and their freedom. One of my favorite plants in the animal kingdom is a Venus flytrap. They're hard to find. In fact, I think the, the best examples that I've ever found was, were up at the uh, Creation Museum. They had a, a walk bridge in a wilderness area, and they grew them there on purpose because they grow in swampy uh, soil normally. Uh, they're fun to watch. But what's the trick to the whole Venus flytrap? The fly gets into the trap. So God has designed this plant, which is... Can we call it a carnivorous plant? I mean, it doesn't eat flesh, flesh, but it does eat flies and other insects. And how does it get the fly in there? I mean, you have to land right where the plant needs you to land. 
Okay. You have, you have some aroma in the flowers. And that bright coloring. Right? The bright coloring. Have you ever watched? You go outside and you're really annoyed because the mosquitoes are super attracted to you. And you're like, what is going on? And you realize you're wearing colors that attract insects. Yeah, they like flowers. So God has designed this plant to offer to the fly something that the fly thinks it wants. And instead, what does it get when it gets exactly what it wants? Death. Unbelieving autonomy brings a loss of opportunity. Now, I don't believe that the fly has any responsibility to trust in God and that somehow he's renouncing God when he flies into the Venus flytrap, okay? Let's not go there. But, but the point of fact is there are lots of illustrations in both the plant and animal kingdom that God has given to us that illustrate our own hearts. I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And God says, pursue it. We get it. We hold it up and we're like, yeah, I got it. Now what? Oh, I want that. We turn around immediately and have to look for some other thing. Why? Because it it never satisfied and to a certain extent it brought bondage because a lot of the things that we want, we have to outlay our resources to acquire. And now we have the bondage of further constrained finances even though we got the very thing that we wanted. This is not wisdom. It is better for us to commit our hearts in a new year to say, Lord, we want what you want. And that may look like, to the world, bondage. Where I say, I renounce my will for yours. That's slavery. Oh, we're all slaves. It's just a matter of what we're slaves to. I would rather have God's authority over my life, renouncing my own autonomy, and then live within the freedom that he has granted. A true freedom. And think of the freedom that we gain. We gain freedom of conscience. We can lay, take our sin and lay it at the feet of the cross again and again and again and walk away and say, I am clean before God. No guilt, no burden, no debt against God that I have to repay, and no eternal condemnation. That's freedom. But so is the day-to-day freedom that we have when we walk within God's plans. A lot of times when we're dealing with uh, business, and I've, I've heard this in a lot of business classes, your teachers will say, always help, you know, uh, channel. When you're a manager, help channel the people under your authority so you get them into the right slots in the company. Why? Because if you compare a person's gifts and abilities and desires with a particular slot so there's not a mismatch, he's going to flourish. Don't we know that's, that's true? Uh, we have this with our kids. So um, I think we all face it intergenerationally. But our kids like things, certain things that we don't like and we like things that they don't like. Right? You, have you seen that at all? So I have a son that enjoys working out. I hate working out. I've always hated working out. I would rather go garden. I mean, I, there's a lot of working out that can be done outdoors doing something productive. You know, let's watch ourselves stretch our backs as we pull weeds, right? I mean, it's, it's good stuff right there. Strengthening all those back muscles. Woo. And what about biceps? Well, carry some wood to the wood pile. What about all the upper back muscles and, you know, all the delts and all the big muscles that make you look? That's called splitting firewood, people, right? So get out the mall and split some firewood. 
And, and on and on it goes. That's, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to do something productive with my hands. So my, my son's like, hey, Dad, you want to work out? No. Hey, Daniel, you want to go work in the woods? No. Right? So there's always a certain mismatch like that. But one of the, the, the tricks that we have as parents is as long as our children are walking with the Lord, is helping direct them in accordance with what is their bent. What they really are good at. What they really do enjoy if it's righteous. Why? Because again, it will, it will be flourishing of life. I, I've said in front of this audience and I've told my, my boss at school as well that he has to pay me to grade teach great papers, but I'll teach for free. So if they ever take away my paper grading, I'll teach for free. <laughs> you can have a free teacher. This will be great. Why? Because I love it. I was clear. I was built for it, apparently. God did whatever he was doing to get me ready for teaching. I love teaching. So it's not a trial. Now think what that looks like then in relation to your life before God. Not, not just a business, but your life before God. If you were created to live righteously and image God in this world, and you're doing anything other, then you're going to be in bondage, and there's always going to be a certain level of friction. It's not that Christianity and following the Lord brings oppression and brings layers of, of a burden or some kind of legalistic enterprise to bear on us. It gives us freedom in the Lord to do what we were created to do. So while unbelieving autonomy robs us of freedom, walking with the Lord and trusting Him brings us a righteous freedom. Let's continue in the chapter. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 35 and following. And Jehoiakim, remember what's happened now, Jehoahaz is in prison in Egypt, and Necho has gotten to appoint the next king of Judah. Not, not Judah, they have, they have no say in the matter. Judah is now under the thumb of Egypt, and Egypt appoints the next king. And we've just levied this charge, you have to give us all this money as well. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Necho, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He ex exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Uh, by the way, same father. This is Jehoahaz's brother, not Jehoahaz's son. So this is yet another son of Josiah who does evil in the sight of the Lord. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant. He thought he got freedom. He got bondage for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him the bands of the Chaldeans and the bands of the Syrians and the bands of the Moabites and the bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh 
according to all that he had done, and for the innocent blood that he has shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. What's the testimony of this man's life? Unbelieving autonomy brings a loss of resources, not just opportunities like the previous king. Jehoiakim did reign for a number of years and then died. But what did he reign over? An ash heap. Because all the power of his father, Josiah, has now been eroded. He's now a vassal of Egypt. Egypt itself is weak, and Egypt is taxing them immeasurably. First, it brings a destruction of existing finances. The accumulated wealth of the people went to a foreign government. Judah and its people did the working and the saving, and the Egyptians profited by it. That's not how it's supposed to be. Isn't it supposed to be the person who does the work, profits from the labor of his own hands? Not when a people turn against God. When a people turn against God and seek their own way, their, their leaders will become progressively more oppressive. And what we call taxation rises to the extent that the people themselves become slaves. And their resources are stripped away from them and they are laid bare. And you go, I have to work more hours just to survive. And yet the government views my work as its property. And the government doesn't care if I die. It doesn't. It'll just replace me with somebody else, just exactly like a slaveholder would. Oh, this is not good. This is not good. It is not freedom that we have gained, but bondage. Jehoiakim chose to defy God and act autonomously, and his autonomy brought nothing but financial ruin. So let's look at the measure. A hundred talents of silver... 100 talents of silver. Now we have to update this, and updating it is not exactly the same as it was in the ancient world because there was no such thing as inflation in the ancient world. A day's wage stayed a day's wage for something on the order of 3,000 years in human history. And then governments realized they could inflate their monetary supply and things like that and pay their debts back with deflated value dollars and dinar, and renbi, and so, remibi, and so on. So there are lots of things that are going on here. Nonetheless, if we brought this into today's monetary amounts, 100 talents of silver would be 120,000 ounces of silver. At $23 an ounce, that's $2.76 million. One talent of gold, well, that's 1,200 ounces. At $2,050 an ounce, that's $2.46 million. So how would you feel if you had to pay $5.2 million to a foreign power just to keep them from invading and killing you all? That's oppression. Yeah. You had stability when you sought the Lord. And as soon as you turned away from him again, there was oppression. And you do have to dial back in your memory one more time. Because God had declared before Josiah's era that judgment was coming. It's like a train hurtling down the tracks. But Josiah comes to power, and what did God do? 
The train is still on the tracks. The train is still coming in your direction. But what did God do? He flagged the train down and said, pause. And then as soon as wicked kings came back into power, he said, all right, go ahead. And the train of judgment comes hurtling towards you once again. That means if Jehoahaz and now Jehoiakim had walked with the Lord and sought his face and his favor and repented, they could not have moved the train off the tracks. Judgment has been decreed by God. It is coming. But it did not have to come in their day. They could have lived in freedom with the opportunity of the previous, of their predecessor, and the financial stability of their predecessor. And instead, their unbelieving autonomy has brought a loss of resource. Any other good illustrations of this from from Scripture? What about the prodigal son? I want what's coming to me. Divide to me my living. And he takes his inheritance. And he thinks he's going to get freedom. And what does he get? Prodigality, complete waste and bondage. Till he looks up from feeding pigs and wanting to fill himself with what the pigs are eating and say, I have absolutely nothing left. Autonomy brings a destruction of existing resources. It also brings a destruction of productive capacity. For this, you have to go into uh, the verses, first few verses of chapter 24. But notice the phrasing, the bands of. Bands of groups are raiding parties. You don't raid somebody who has the strength to fight back. You know, criminals don't really want their adversary to be able to oppose them. That's why they flourish when people can't oppose them. Uh, This is true in the ancient world. It's true today. Criminality will always flourish where people can't oppose the criminal effectively. They look for abandoned places. Uh, They look for houses where people are on vacation, so there's nobody there to oppose them. They look for a place that they can break in at night, steal and escape before the alarms, which are now tripped, actually bring some security to the location. But here we have the bands of the Chaldeans, Syrians, Moabites, and Ammonites. All the surrounding nations are are, are simultaneously attacking Judah. These are like the raiders from Midian during the days of Gideon or the raiders of the Amalekites in the days of Saul. They come in and they don't just steal your resources, they destroy everything in their path. And your productive capacity itself is diminished. You see, if if I have two adult cows, and one is a boy and one is a girl, guess what I have the potential for? Lots of little cowlets. (laughs) Right? Lots of calves, potentially, in the future. And then I can use those calves to gain more calves, to gain more calves, to gain more calves, and so on it goes. But when your adversary comes in and steals even one of your two existing cows, you're in trouble. Because now there is no potential for future gain. 
The productive capacity of a nation can actually be destroyed by divine judgment when that nation seeks an unbridled and unbelieving autonomy from God. We don't have to be super political to recognize that when a government is taking money from people who are producing to give it to people who are wholly unproductive, that is going to destroy the productive capacity of a people. Why? Because if you give money to somebody who's going to go out and buy lottery tickets with it, you might as well just burn the money. But if you left it in the hands of somebody who earned it and who values it, so that he turns around and invests it, then companies become stronger and the banking system becomes stronger and loans can be made more effectively for people and businesses out there and so on. So divine judgment is actually destroying the productive capacity of a nation. Oh, and we can point the finger at government. That's the easy solution. If we could just... But we forget when we do that, the government is what it is because the people are who they are. Because we are who we are. A nation that is walking with the Lord does not find this destruction of its productive capacity, but finds God's blessing. And we could make lots of additional illustrations, uh, personal, individual, isolated to ourselves, as well as national that where people seek an autonomy from God, they get ruined. And that's proverbial. We understand that sometimes the wicked prosper, uh, and, and the wicked like to hold up their, their exceptions to the rule. What about George Soros? He's a wicked person, and he, you know, look at how prosperous he is. Yes, but look at all the millions upon millions of people who are wicked like him and have wasted their resources and are under divine judgment, and he will be as well. In some sense, the uh, pursuit of autonomy is the equivalent, the moral equivalent of panning for gold. Anybody know, historically speaking, who got rich from the California gold rush? The shopkeepers, not the people who are looking for the gold. Why? Because they're limited resources. You need a mule. So if somebody can supply a mule... And there are about a hundred of you in here that need a mule. And I bring only five mules in. You all have to have a mule. How much are you going to pay for that mule? And what will you give me for the mule? And she bids a hundred dollars. And I'm like, eh, okay. Ed, what about you? He's like, 200, easy. Okay, Dave? Five, five hundred thousand, I could just, you know, here I could turn into an auctioneer and bid it up. And that's exactly what happened. People were seeking in a, a, an unbridled independence. And by the way, I'm, if, if any of you have this as a hobby, that's fine. That's hobby. <laughs> okay. Different thing for, entirely from people who are seeking complete independence from government, from strictures, from work. What they really wanted was independence from work. They didn't realize how hard gold panning could be. And in reality, they got bondage, long hours, they didn't get rich, and other people did. Well, the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. 
Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Himself, his mother, his servants, and his officials, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house cut it in, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. He carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. That was a lot of alls, wasn't it? I want freedom! And if I seek that freedom apart from God, I get exactly the opposite. Unbelieving autonomy brings the loss of physical freedom. A little bit of a map here again. Nebuchadnezzar's empire is uh, given to you here in blue on the map. You'll notice just a couple of things. It looks like the Assyrian Empire. Funny thing about empires in the ancient world, if you beat the guy that was before you, his territory becomes yours. So it looks pretty much the same as the Assyrian Empire with one major difference, and that is Assyria never conquered Egypt. Babylon did. Pushed all the way back in and took Egypt's territories all the way to the brook of Egypt. And Egypt is broken and never becomes a world power again. This is the turning point. Egypt, literally, from that time on, you know, all those dynasties and pyramid building and all that stuff that we, that's all in the past. It never becomes a world power again. Necho's power is now eroding quickly as God's plan for Babylonian judgment of Judah comes to fruition. This also demonstrates the futility of vassalage to the world. To try to become a vassal of the world and serve the world is futile when the world just turns over its own wicked masters. You may think you're pledging yourself to one thing and another takes it over in a short period of time. Remember that in today's terms, little Judah, which was, by the way, at this time about the size of Greenville County, paid $5.2 million to Egypt only to see Egypt fall. So how much question, how much benefit did Judah actually get out of that $5.2 million then? Does Babylon care that you just paid off one of Babylon's enemies? Does Babylon care? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, time out. We just paid Egypt, so we're kind of destitute right now. So if you'll allow us to rebuild for a few years, then maybe we can become your... Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care that you're destitute. He wants it all. And if you're destitute of money, fine, he'll take your people. And so he does. 
unbelieving autonomy brings a loss of physical freedom. Jehoiachin is the third king in a row who did evil after God had promised judgment. And we end up with this harm of personal freedom and others' freedom. Personal freedom because Jehoiachin goes into captivity in Babylon from which he never escapes. He rules for three months and the rest of his life he's a prisoner. It harms others' freedom because the wickedness of the kings, granted, which just reflects the wickedness of the people as well, but all of those descriptions of what Judah lost, the treasures of the king's house, the vessels of gold, Jerusalem, the officials, the mighty men of valor, craftsmen, smiths, Jehoiachin, the mother, the wives, the officials, the chief men, the men of valor, craftsmen and metal workers, strong and fit for war, everybody and everything valuable is now the private possession of Babylon. It has not worked out well for Judah and it will not work out well for the people of God today. Autonomy from God has always resulted in bondage rather than freedom. A number of years ago, I helped a child build a plastic model. I, I grew up building plastic models, particularly World War II. I like the 172nd scale. Haven't built them, by the way, in about 20 years. But they were really interesting to me. I tried to make them really detailed, super realistic, and said child had, wanted nothing to do, really, with building models other than to get it done and play it around, fly it around. So it was supposed to have like things like sweep wings. You know, it was a F-14 Tomcat, so had moving parts, sweep wings, and retractable gear and things like that. But, you know, if, if you put model cement kind of just glopped in there in the wrong places, what happens? Any modelers? See, the the funny thing about model cement is it's actually a chemical with acetone in it that melts the plastic for a time. So that plastic and plastic are both turning into this gooey, syrupy mess for a time. And then you blow on it for a little while or let it sit, and it re-hardens. But now that gloopy mess has turned solid, and it doesn't come apart again. That's the whole principle. It's not like white glue that you just stick, and it's kind of a bond between the two. It's actually fused them. So once you glop that glue around because you want autonomy from your father, because he doesn't know anything about making models, even though he's done it for 30 years, right? Once you glop that glue in there and fuse the model parts together, guess what? No amount of crying is going to unfuse them. No amount of frustration, no amount of disappointment. And said child moved on from model making quickly into woodworking and other things. Isn't it always the way? And somehow I can be almost 50 years old and still be treating God as if I know how to build the models better than he does. Instead of living our year this year with our agenda primarily in mind, can we yield our hearts to the Lord, submit to him, and find the freedom that he intends? Father, we're thankful for the testimony of your word today. Thank you that, once again, your word rings true. It is true. This is real history. It really happened the way it did. But it also rings true because what you've chosen to capture from history is more than just facts and figures. These are not names to be memorized and dates to be known. These are principles and truths that you want us to weave into the very fabric of our lives so that we walk faithfully before you in this new year. So may we be a people of faith, loyal to you, and when we find ourselves disloyal, turning our hearts back again 
in repentance. Why? Because you are so great and good and you're the only king who can reign over us in perfection. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.